The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. And now for something completely different. Hey, I was, I'm a Hall of Famer. I'm in three Halls of Fame. For the young fans, they don't give a damn. They just give a damn about themselves and what they're hearing now. And I got no problem with those rules. I know the rules going in. I'm happy to play the game that way. And when Ivan came off with that uh, knee drop from the top rope and he pinned me, I thought that something happened. I couldn't hear a thing. You could have heard the pin drop in that arena. It touched me so deeply that when I went in the dressing room, I really felt depressed. I'll tell you that, I'll tell you right to his face. If Hogan and I, if he wanted to get in a real street fight with me, trust me, he would lose, and he knew it. You know, that's the other thing. They give you the belt, and they're like, okay, you're in charge of me. I was like, what? When you mentioned a guy like Harley Race, that kind of legendary status, it's obvious why people would get upset. Or as I'm concerned, Roddy Piper was not a wrestler. He wasn't even a good worker. If he had to go out and work his way to the top and not have good friends like Jim Barnett. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying he's not a good guy. He's just not a tough guy. Bro, I swear to you, I don't have an ego. Like, I don't give a crap. I, that stuff is not important to me. People don't know me. They have no idea of who I am. They know of me as being a fictional character that they saw on TV. People didn't understand that, you know, the guy they saw in the ring that happened to be using his real name, that happened to actually be the president of the company, they really believed that that guy that they loved to hate was actually a pretty decent guy. And I think many people have the perception that I really was that character. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. to the feature episodes of the two-man power trip of wrestling if you didn't know by now my name is chad and as always i'm joined by my tag team partner the one and only jp john paz and in this feature episode number four to be exact we are going to be stepping into a crazy world and that is the world of ken shamrock through the eyes of bleacher report senior writer and an author himself, Jonathan Snowden, who joined us here for the feature series where John and Jonathan Snowden and their little blossoming Twitter friendship has been taking on a life of its own over the last couple of years. But with the culmination with this interview, finally, a lot of topics get to be covered. And John, I don't want to beat around the bush. I want to get right into it. Tell us what this interview has got in store for us and how much are we going to learn about just how much of a uh, dangerous man Ken Shamrock is. You know, a lot of really, really good stuff in this interview. Not only is Jonathan Snowden my favorite follow on Twitter, but he is a great author, not only MMA, but in the world of pro wrestling. And when you throw Ken Shamrock's name into the mix, he's a legend in the MMA ranks, obviously. But I think a lot of people forget he was a pretty damn accomplished professional wrestler and was actually a professional wrestler before he was a fighter. Technically speaking, he is a wrestler first and an MMA fighter. So you get a lot of good stuff. Obviously, they're going to cover that in the book. But you get a lot of other good stuff in the book, a lot of stuff that wasn't before talked about in Shamrock's other books, which were very, you know, I won't say Shamrock-friendly or whatever, but obviously 
they were much more positive. This is going to be a very, very honest look at Ken and the behind the scenes and his lifestyle and all that other crazy stuff that goes on with it. Not necessarily all positive. You're going to get some negative with some uh, extracurricular activities, some partying, some things like that. But I implore you, I am telling you people right now, get out there to Indiegogo. There's only about six days left. Go there. Go to Shamrock. Go to that book and donate whatever you got to do. Put that money down. Fund this project. Get this going. So that's Indiegogo and look for Ken Shamrock. You will find it, I guarantee it. Or even just go to Jonathan Snowden's Twitter page and it's on there. And I know Ken Shamrock's been promoting it on Twitter as well. So you go to Ken Shamrock's Twitter and the link will be right there. But please, I implore you, there is some autograph opportunities there. There's some action figure possibilities there. There's a painting. There's an ability to go out to the MMA event with Ken Shamrock himself. A lot of great, cool stuff. And I know they're about 83% or so funded right now. Want to get to that $10,000 mark. Want to get to 100%. So please do what you got to do and buy this book via Indiegogo. You got five days left technically when this is published, but they are actually now 84% of the way there and inching ever so close. And like John said, head over to Indiegogo and look up Shamrock, the world's most dangerous man. Check out the perks and just read a little bit more about the uh, the background and the story of Ken Shamrock, the world's most dangerous man. I mean, obviously the, the wrestling world, not to sell him short, in any stretch of the imagination, I mean, he was absolutely money when he came into the wrestling world in 1990, what, 1990, 91, right? When he really broke in and then hit the mainstream later on in the 90s with the WWF after taking his, really, his biggest shot there in the UFC and in mixed martial arts. But really, the late 90s, I think of a guy like Ken Shamrock as a uh, as a can't-miss guy in that Attitude Era, really brought a cool uh, flavor to the roster and uh, had some really high profile matches. And obviously even with us, Hey, he's a past guest from one of our early, early episodes, probably one of the biggest names we had up to that point when we interviewed him back in 2015. And uh, he's just one of those guys, man. You just, you can't deny the, uh, the impact that Ken Shamrock had. And before we get into the interview, John, just any highlights of this conversation with Jonathan, anything that you really you felt like after all these Back and forth you guys, you guys have had on Twitter over the last couple of years. Anything that you guys really uh, hammered in on? Because I know he's a big Japanese wrestling fan as well. Yeah, you know, I just love talking to fellow Japanese wrestling fans and MMA fans and things like that. Not your normal, like, typical fans that just know pretty much the meat and potatoes. I like the people that know more than that. They, you know, they... they they travel on further into the wrestling business and MMA, if you will. They don't just know, you know, oh, you know, Ken Shamrock, for instance. UFC, people know that. You know, they're not going to know the generic stuff. And I know we do get the Conor McGregor and a little bit of, of uh, some generic talk as far as MMA. But I like that we can dig deeper. And my favorite stuff is digging deeper into the Japanese pro wrestling world, which he is a big fan of and which I am a huge fan of. So that's the kind of stuff that, that I really enjoyed talking to him about and getting some you know deeper details on, on some things that you may not have in, in a normal conversation even with some of my friends uh, maybe even Chad who doesn't know the Japanese wrestling scene as well as myself and obviously as well as Jonathan I need a translator that's for damn sure but yeah it's really great when you can get two guys that know a lot about 
the uh, the topic and also the fact that the the translators and the people involved to help get some of these interviews into this project as well. It's just so cool the outreach that we've got now as wrestling fans and uh, what we can see when we see these creative style campaigns like this Indiegogo campaign. So please head on over to Jonathan Snowden's Twitter, get get the link, check it out and support it. And you can tell them that you heard him here on the two man power trip of wrestling's feature series feature episode number four. So with all that being said, let's wrap it up here and let's head it on over to the interview as we get into the octagon or the squared circle and talk a little bit about the world's most dangerous man. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno San Martino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rose, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Magnum TA, and so many others. And for all you Android users, please hit us up on Google Play or Player FM. And all you iOS users, please check us out on TuneIn Radio, Automatic, Spotify, and now iHeartRadio. And now, without any further ado, he is a Blue Report senior writer. He is a best-selling author of wrestling and MMA. He is now the author of Sandlot, the world's most famous man. He is the best follow on Twitter. He is Jonathan Noted. Enjoy. is a Bleach Report senior writer, a best-selling author of pro wrestling and MMA, also my favorite follow on Twitter. He is a Jonathan Snowden. Welcome to the two-man power trip. <laughs> oh, thanks for that introduction. Your favorite follow on Twitter. That's a, a bold statement. That, that, of all the things you mentioned, I'm probably most proud of that. So that, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I just love kind of scrolling through and then seeing you either you know, ripping somebody or making <laughs> making a great pro wrestling argument, like saying Daniel Bryan is one of the greatest wrestlers you've ever seen. Well, yeah, that, I don't think that's a too bold a statement there, right? I think uh, most people surely believe that, right? Like Daniel Bryan is so self-evidently excellent that it, it would be hard to deny that, at least. I mean, I wouldn't put it past wrestling fans. They, they, they can do anything they want to and make any kind of case they want, but, man, Daniel Bryan is so good, isn't he? Uh, he's the best. And I just say that because some of the fans, I read what they say, and they might be the worst 
fans going. It's this new crop of wrestling fans that came out of nowhere that some of them was weird. Some of them don't watch, but they read. Like, I, I don't know. I don't get the, this new this new wrestling fandom that's going on with some of these fans. Mm. Well, there's like a, a growing movement where people think it's uh, sophisticated to, to not like things. And, and when it comes to pro wrestling, I, I tend to, to go the other direction. And, you know, I like a lot of it. A lot of it's really good. And, and there's a lot of incredible talent out there, uh, both, uh, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s and today. So, I mean, if you can't enjoy pro wrestling and you're a pro wrestling fan, there, there's something wrong with you, I think, not with wrestling. Definitely. And it was a great take by you. This was a while back, but I just remember thinking, it was like, oh, wow, he must be a, a good not really old school fan per se, but you said Daniel Bryan's Ring of Honor title reign was great. I don't know if you were catching up on some old school Ring of Honor from 12 years ago, but that was a great take you had there because that's probably arguably my favorite title run of any promotion. He was uh, on fire at that point. Yes, those were kind of like lost years for me. So that was uh, kind of after after my fandom had kind of lapsed a little bit. So I I had missed some of it. Obviously, I I had seen Daniel Bryan and heard a lot about it, but I hadn't really watched it in in its completion, in its entirety. And so uh, being like a, a complete wrestling nerd, uh, even though it's you know 2018 and, and you can find wrestling anywhere you want to on the internet, I ordered a 23 DVD set <laughs> of Daniel Bryan's ROH uh, title reign, and so uh, yeah, I was I was going through it, and uh, some of it I'd seen before, some of it I was seeing for the first time, and it's just remarkable how how uh, good he was. Not and, and it wasn't just like some wrestlers, you know, they they. They find their pattern, they find their routine, and, and that's what they're going to do for five or ten years or, or longer than that. If you're like Ric Flair or somebody, you know, you kind of know what to expect. Uh, what I liked about Daniel Bryan is how, you know, how easily he, he could mix it up and then babyface and heel and just uh, introducing new techniques and, and, and match his match layouts are, are different almost every time. And it's, uh, it, it, was, it was good. It was, I was really impressed. Now, I met him, I mean, I've met him a few times, obviously, and I used to go to all those shows. So uh, a few months ago, or probably a little bit less than that, at uh, the Philly Comic Con, he was there, and I was able to kind of talk to him a little bit longer because I had a, a press pass and all this nonsense. So, you know, I was able to like kind of sneak some extra time in with him. And I said, uh, oh, you know, I used to go to all these shows. You were a champion. I started naming uh, matches he had against Austin Aries or Homicide or Joe or AJ and going down the list. And he's like, wow, he's like, you went through a lot of shows. Yeah. He goes, what about Jimmy Rave? And he just randomly mentioned this Jimmy Rave match that was in New Jersey. And I was like, wow, he literally can, I mean, I can name you a million matches he has that's good. And he can still find one that's just <laughs> great that I can't even think of. Yeah, he's he's cool. So for Bleacher Report, when I was covering pro wrestling, I actually interviewed him three or four times, and and we worked together on this big story about his his WrestleMania main event. So I interviewed him and Triple H and Stephanie and a whole bunch of people. So it was a pretty cool experience. So I, I've gotten to talk to him quite a bit, and uh, you know he's as great as he is a professional wrestler. He's he's a super nice guy, about the nicest guy you could possibly imagine in this industry so uh you know he's pretty much got it all going for him uh what a super guy he is awesome and i hate that we went off on a a totally totally different tangent there on daniel bryan but uh because we are here to focus on ken shamrock kind of sort of 
but well, I'm happy. I'm happy to talk about anything you want to. So <laughs> I could talk about Daniel Bryan all night, or if you want to start talking about Terry Funk, or well, you know, whatever you've got. I'm, I'm, I'm down. Oh, I, Funk's another one of my favorites. I feel like I have too many favorites. Daniel um, Bryan, <laughs> Funk, I, I have a Sting. I love Austin Aries. I mean, there's so many guys that I like. But as far as Ken Shamrock, another one of guy, one of the guys that I just love because of the pro wrestling and MMA, and you kind of mix it up and. I love the fact with Ken Shamrock that you wrote this book, The World's Most Dangerous Man. It's a comprehensive biography. It's uh, up on Indiegogo. I suggest that people definitely go there, look at some of the goals, look at some of the stuff you have on there as far as getting the book. You know, can you just talk a little bit about this project and in, in general and kind of why Ken? Yeah, so, it, you know, it, it's a good question because it does seem like, you know, and I thought this too when they first uh, approached me with this idea. I thought, you know, what's the point, right? Like, you know, Ken has already had two books. There's been a bunch of documentaries. Uh, everybody who who's interested kind of already knows a little bit about Ken's story, about how he he was in the, in the foster system and and had a troubled youth, and he found this guy Bob Shamrock who who helped uh, turn him into the man he became, and you know, UFC, WWE, back to. MMA, like, you know, people kind of know the, the bare bones of his story. And so, you know, I, I, even I was asking, like, you know, why would I want to do this? It, it turns out there's so much more to, to Ken Shamrock than people know. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of darkness in his life, both before and after he was famous. And so um, this is the, the, the book that really connects the dots, like the stories that you, you know about that you know a little bit about, like, his his wrestling in Pancras, like, were, were these work bouts or were they real MMA fights? We go into that. We go into, like, what happened on the, the night that he quit in the ring against Fujita and Pride. Like, all these stories that we, we sort of know a little bit about, um, he really went into detail with me and gave me great access to his complete inner circle. And so, uh, you know... There's so much we don't know, and, and I think this is really just a great opportunity to show fans what it's really, what it was really like to be a founding father of the UFC, what it was really like to be a WWE superstar at the height of the Attitude Era. Like this, this he he doesn't he bars no holds in this. You know, he he tells everything. You know, what you know the the sex, the drugs, everything that went on in the life of a superstar in combat sports in the 1990s, uh, Ken jumps right into it. So it's um, it's a pretty interesting book. You know, I don't think anybody's seen anything quite like it. Now people should definitely get on Indiegogo, check it out, buy a book, maybe even buy some of his uh, Japanese magazines or buy a figure. Definitely do something to donate to the cause to make sure you reach the 10,000 goal, which you're definitely well past halfway, definitely on your way to there. Now, what's interesting about Ken, and I feel like a lot of people don't even realize this, and this is just a rudimentary fact of it, he's a pro wrestler that did MMA. People always think he was an MMA fighter that was a pro wrestler, but it's actually the other way around. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Ken Ken was a guy who was an athlete as a, as a kid. He played football and he was a wrestler. And then, uh, and, and he had a lot of potential uh, in the state of California. You know, the potential to to be a state champion and things like that, get college scholarships. And, and he broke his neck uh, in, in his senior year um, practicing uh, for the state championships in wrestling. Uh, a guy landed on top of him. He was bridging, and, and his neck just snapped. People said it sounded like a gunshot. And so um, it, it seemed like his athletic career was over at that time in high school. 
And uh, so he kind of drifted around. He, he uh, refused to quit. He played junior college football and stuff like that. But then, you know, he was just kind of drifting a little bit when um, when his adopted father, Bob Shamrock, suggested he get into pro wrestling. So he started training with Buzz Sawyer, um, and, and that was kind of like one of these awful wrestling stories where a guy takes your money to train you and then doesn't actually train you. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yep. so, so he, he showed up a few times, and, and Buzz uh, kind of... Uh, uh, kind of stole their money a little bit, and then uh, they found Nelson Royal in North Carolina, and, and he went over there actually get trained in professional wrestling. And, and he was a, a pro wrestler and a pretty promising one uh, by the name of Vince Torelli in, in the old South Atlanta pro wrestling promotion back in the in the late '80s. And so you're absolutely right. Like, but uh, before there was even such a thing as UFC. Uh, he was already a wrestler and, and a promising one. So um, you're you're right that people get confused about that and think that you know he was. I, I thought it was funny at the time. A lot of people thought that he was betraying the UFC and mixed martial arts by leaving to go to pro to you know quote unquote fake pro wrestling. Uh, people had no idea that that's where he had started. So <laughs> it's kind of funny. Yeah, exactly. I always thought that was weird. Like people not realize that he's really a pro wrestler. So it's kind of one of those things where it's like oh. Pro wrestlers can't be, you know, they can't be MMA fighters. Well, if if Lesnar winning the title doesn't prove people wrong, yeah, if you got to look back, look at Shamrock, look at Severn. That's another guy. There's so many. Uh, Sakuraba might be the, the best one of the bunch. All these pro wrestlers that are pretty damn good MMA fighters. Oh yeah, and, and then you talk about, you know, a guy who's still going strong right now. Uh, Minoru Suzuki was was a pro wrestler before he was a, a fighter. Um, you know, the, there's a lot of them. And so it's, uh, and part of that is because uh, for for guys like Lesnar and then guys like Shamrock and Suzuki, they, they have a foundation not just in, in, in scripted pro wrestling, but in, in actual amateur wrestling. All, all three of them were amateur wrestlers. And then Suzuki and Shamrock added the, the catch wrestling holds of, of uh, Carl Gotch uh, and, and Fujiwara and guys like that. So they, they were multifaceted. So, uh, you know, they're pro wrestlers, but they're also just plain old wrestlers. And, and so uh, there's a lot of guys like that in, in the industry. So uh, I, I wouldn't sell pro wrestlers short. You know, they're, they're, they're tough people. They're, they are talented athletes for the most part. And, and a lot of them have, have like an incredible determination and, and pain tolerance that makes training for MMA possible. And so uh, it's no surprise to me that, that someone would come out of pro wrestling and, and be a good fighter. You know, they kind of have a lot of the tools for it. Mineral Suzuki, who you just mentioned, obviously has a history with him in Pancrase. And, we, I mean, we talked to Ken probably about three years ago, and I noticed with him certain topics, you know, he would kind of get excited for certain topics. You could tell he's like, uh, you know, he, he kind of didn't want to talk about it. But Minoru Suzuki was a topic he kind of like popped a little bit for. I don't know if he was surprised that you know we were as familiar with him as as we were, or if just just generally a guy that he has fond memories with. Is that somebody where you were interviewing him? Something where he that you know really got excited and, and liked that topic? <laughs> um, well, it's, it's interesting with Ken because um, you know he definitely remembers the that he. He lost his Pampers matches to to, to Suzuki, mm-hmm. and so this is a controversial issue with, with him. And uh, you know, there's a lot of, of kind of rumors that have floated around for a long time that those were work fights, and that the the Pankers organization had had asked him to lose those matches. And without uh, spoiling too much, um, 
uh, we go into some detail about whether or not that's true. So uh, it's definitely a topic close to, to Ken's heart. And uh, uh, Suzuki is uh, one of the guys he actually uh, kind of dislikes. So <laughs> mm. it's a, it's interesting, like on a personal level. And one of the few guys from Pancras that, that he, he didn't get along with. And he, he goes into some of the reasons for, for that. So it's uh, there's a we, we cover all this stuff, man. If you're if if the listeners are into the Japanese wrestling scene, into WWE, into UFC, uh, there is no stone we didn't turn over looking for a good story from Ken or the people around him, like the ex lions and fighters, his kids, uh, people that he that he knew in high school, people that he knew in college, guys that were bouncers with him when he worked in the clubs. Uh, the guys that trained with him and with Nelson Royal, people who wrestled with him later, like, you know, I, I talked to everybody. And everybody's got a, a great Ken Shamrock story, and, and I'm trying to get uh, every single one of those in this book in, in some form or another. Love it. And he's uh, he's definitely an excitable guy, it seems like, when you mention certain topics to him. He definitely pops, so to speak, for uh, certain topics, so, so it seems. With Ken... Did you notice anything with him when you were interviewing him and kind of deep diving? Was he volatile at all? Because you know the the uh, the history of Ken. Sometimes, you know, you ask him the wrong question, or you know, you say something, and, and you know, he'll let you hear about it, so to speak. <laughs> well, he's definitely a passionate guy, um, but you know, we we entered into this project together with with the same goal, I think, which was to really tell the truth about about his life. And, you know that's that's what we're trying to do. So so we we had the same mission, so to speak. So we we didn't really run into problems necessarily like that. Um, but but you're absolutely right that there are some things that he still gets fired up about, and 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 you can tell that that there's still a, a, a fire there that that, that kind of burns. And the, and the number one uh, topic for for him that I think I talked to him for hours and hours. I went to his house on two different occasions. Uh, for for extended trips and you know to talk to him and his family and it, the the topic that really still gets to him is, is Hoist Gracie. Um, you know even all these years later, you know it's 25 years since uh, UFC won, and and he still kind of uh, resents some of the things that happened with Hoist Gracie and, and doesn't feel like he's gotten his due. And, and was cheated out of his opportunity to to finally win against Hoist in that last Bellator fight, um, where he believes he was struck with some low blows. Like so, this is a you know a lot of people kind of thought those fights you know they're they're almost comedy fights. These two older guys getting in there and, and trying to fight you know well past their prime into their fifties. But but for Ken that was deadly serious business and it and it's still something that, that kind of burns him up that, that he couldn't finally get that win over Royce. Uh even though, you know, people feel like he won the fight at UFC five, their second fight, um, technically it was a draw and, and he really wanted to get that win. And uh so it, you know, that's something that he's gonna probably think about um you know, until his last day. I do hate that sometimes when you watch the fight and you know the guy won or you think the guy won and it's a draw or it goes the other way. or That kind of, even as a fan, bothers me for sure. And I can't even imagine Ken with the passion that he has and, and kind of the intensity he can have, how much that would bother him. Even 25 years later, and then obviously the, the Bellator incident, were you able to talk to Hoyt at all? 
Yeah, so I, I've talked to Hoist a, a couple of times, um, just kind of throughout my career as an MMA reporter. So, uh, and we've talked about Ken. So, you know, I've, I've got his perspective on it as well. And and maybe it's because Hoist was the champion so many times early, and and because he beat Ken, and Ken never beat beat him. You know, he doesn't he doesn't seem to hold on to it the same way that that Ken does. And so, uh, it, it definitely is something that. Um, that he Ken's had a hard time getting over, and it's it's a little bit different than the Tito Ortiz fights because that's another fighter that he fought three times and and couldn't get a win over. But you know, he kind of acknowledges that every single one of those fights was, was after his physical prime, after he he had already beat up his body in in WWE and and in fighting, and so you know. He gives himself, I think, a, a pass on those, on not being able to beat Tito, who was the younger, stronger fighter. Um, but, but Hoist, man, he, he he felt like he could have won that fight, and uh, it definitely it definitely troubled him. What's funny about the Tito thing is UFC, to me at that point, was kind of like, oh, like I was starting to get really bored with it, and then you know, not really uh, as into it. And then that feud happened, and it really ignited my passion. And I, I kept thinking, for whatever reason, maybe like the Rocky Balboa story, that Ken was going to win. Ken was going to win, but you know, he, you know, he keeps putting over the younger guy. Not, not really. I mean, he really <laughs> lost to him. But I just was like, man, I was, I was hoping for that Rocky Balboa moment. But he really kind of put Tito over, and really kind of put UFC back on the map. Do you agree with that, that, that Ken really played a huge role in that? Oh, yeah, it was big, really big. And that, and everybody admits it. It's harder to get them to talk about it now because there's some bad blood between Ken and the UFC, and there was a lawsuit between them. And so, um, you know, they're not in the in the place where they're saying nice stuff about Ken right now. But, mm-hmm. you know, there, there was a time where, where they, they did talk about him kind of more openly. And, and the fact is that UFC 40 uh, against Tito Ortiz was the – by far the biggest uh, pay-per-view attraction that Zufa had 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 to that point. You know, they bought the, the UFC um, a, a year before that, and um, you know they they had really struggled. They they had their first show back on on full pay-per-view on you know where they had access to the cable universe, and they were going to make it big, and that was UFC 33. And it was a total disaster. Every fight went to a decision. It was one of the most dreadful UFC cards ever. And they never really recovered from that. You know, they were doing these shows with, like, Matt Hughes headlining and guys like that where they were only getting, like, thirty or 40,000 buys. And uh, Ken comes in with Tito and, and pops a buy over 100,000. Um, and, and it was a profitable show. And that was the, the first time that Lorenzo Fertitta, who was the new owner of the UFC, really kind of... Um, felt confident that this was going to make it. You know, they were still, they were still thinking up, up until Ken came back that this might not work, and they may lose money just like the other guys lost money on UFC. And, and they're starting to get a little bit nervous, and I think Ken kind of cured them of that because he, he kind of taught them how, how to promote these fights. And, and he, he convinced people, you know, like you were saying, he convinced people that even though he was an old guy and, and maybe had, you know, didn't have it anymore, that he was still tough enough to, to stand in there with a guy like Tito Ortiz. And, and that was what Tito needed. Because, you know, they had tried to make Tito the, the big star in UFC, um, but, you know, people weren't that familiar with him. They, you know, they hadn't seen him. The UFC had been hidden from the, the mainstream. So people had never seen Tito. They didn't know who he was. And they didn't really accept these guys, the, the new guys, because they hadn't beaten the, the old guard. So it was important to bring in guys like 
Pink Abbott and, and Ken Shamrock. And then later they did it with Hoist Gracie and, and fed him to Matt Hughes. These older guys had to do the job, so to speak, to, to these young guys to, to put them over and, and, and for fans to accept them. And so Ken was huge. And, and then he came back uh, again uh, a few years later and had the, you know, popped the ratings for the Ultimate Fighter when he went against Tito. And then they, they did a, a pay-per-view fight that did over 700,000 buys, which was huge at the time. Um, you know, Ken has been a star for a long time, and, and he's made a big difference everywhere he's gone. You know, he's, he's drawn numbers to the point where even his fights with Hoist Gracie and Kimbo Slice for Bellator were popping huge TV ratings, and he's in his 50s and totally washed up. Like, there's just something about Ken that uh, attracts people, and, and they, they want to watch him when he fights. And, uh, and UFC and others have taken good advantage of that. I feel like they give almost Chuck Liddell because he's buddies with Dana White and they almost give him too much credit and then they try not to give Ken as much credit, but that charisma is there. There's something, like you said, there's something to Ken that he still, when he, you, you kind of didn't think he was going to win, but there's some kind of glimmer of hope. So it's, it's like uh, that X factor, that charisma that he has. That kind of bleed through a lot to you? Yeah, I think for sure, and and you know it's a, it's just something that that people embrace him, and, uh, and you know it's not really even clear why. Like he had his he he went to to Japan, you know he was this is going back a little bit, but so he had he had wrestled in South Atlantic and in a little bit in in, in Georgia, and, and he got an opportunity to go to Japan, and so he ended up in in one of the shoot style promotions, the, the UWF, and eventually something called Pro Wrestling Fujiwara Gumi, and um. You know, for whatever reason, the crowd in Japan just embraced him immediately. You know, they they were chanting his name after his first match against Yoji Anjo. And, uh, you know, it's not really clear to me why. You know, he was good. He put on a good performance. He wasn't great. But, you know, there's just something about him that, that attracts the eye. And maybe it's just like the musculature that he has, just the fact that he looks like a, a freaking Greek god. Um but there's just something about him that, that people are, are attracted to and find interesting. And everywhere he's gone, you know, he's gotten over. To the, to the point where, you know, when he came into WWF, I was just watching the, the television from uh, 1997 when he first came into the company. And, and he, he's getting a huge pop from, like, almost day one. And he's immediately interacting with Stone Cold Steve Austin and Bret Hart as kind of equals. Um, the, the guy just has it. And, uh, you know, there's, I, there's no explaining it. There's no science to it. It's just something he's got inside of him. People want to watch him, and they do. And I feel like when he first got to WBF, he had that legitimate credibility because he was a you know, sparred fighter, and they really they kind of knew him from UFC. Maybe they didn't know his wrestling background, so to speak, but they really got him over as, as legit and he got those other guys over because he was so legit. But I just love the fact that that first match with Vader, I mean, that is just, even now I, I still like going back and watching it. That is a great match and a great kind of introduction to him, the pro wrestler, again in the WWF. Oh, man, it was, what an incredible match. And, it, it, you know, if people are not, I mean, probably anyone who's listening is familiar with Vader, but, you know, he's one of the most hard-hitting wrestlers of his era not just in Japan where he wrestled for, you know, New Japan Pro Wrestling and then the, the UWFI and the shoot style promotion later in all Japan Pro Wrestling. He did it all. But, you know, he was definitely, even in, when he was working uh, WCW and, and, and then in WWF, you know, this was a guy that just liked to beat the crap out of people, right? And, uh, 
there is nothing that Ken Shamrock liked better than that. So, you know, Ken told me he loved the fact that he could step in there with Vader uh, and, and they can deliver a solid match, right? Like where he doesn't have to worry about holding back too much. He doesn't have to be too afraid that he's going to, you know, be too stiff with Vader. And Vader's going to give it right back to him. And, and Kenny loves that match. And, uh, you know, I, I think that Leon loved it too. And so it was a, a great introduction to WWF for, for Ken. Like, you know, I can't imagine a better opponent. Great introduction. But then it's weird with him. It's it's almost like he probably should have gotten pushed more. Bret Hart even says maybe during that whole Montreal Screwjob thing that maybe losing to him would have been a good thing because, you know, he loses to a credible guy who who legit can kick anybody's ass in the company. But, you know, they were talking about possibly main eventing and, and things like that. Why do you think that he went from such a strong debut and then all of a sudden kind of, not floundered because, I mean, he was in a couple of main events and things like that, but it was almost like they should have kept that momentum going and maybe he should have been the world champion. Yeah, so there's a lot of stuff going on there in, in WWF. And, you know, it's kind of hard to penetrate uh, what actually is happening because, you know, it's wrestling, right? And uh, everybody's got a story and, and the more outlandish, the better. And it's hard to really sort through it all to, to tell what's true and what's not. Um, you know, that's my experience writing about wrestling is, you know, <laughs> everybody's got a different story and it's, it's, it's kind of hard to figure out exactly what happened, but definitely um, some things happened backstage with Ken that we get into in, in the book that, um, that did curtail his push a little bit. And then um, there's also the fact that it was the attitude era, man. And it was just, I mean, the talent was um, through the, through the roof. I mean, you're talking about, you know, Ken had this long feud with Rocky Maivia you know, the, the young talent doesn't get much better than that. And, and Mankind had just come in. And Stone Cold, you know, his, Ken's debut in, in WWF was WrestleMania 13 and Stone Cold becoming a megastar. And you had The Undertaker. And, you know, so, you know, the the top was crowded. You know, you guys like Ken and, and Triple H, who I think were, were both really legitimate talents, had a lot of potential you know, look at all those guys in front of him. I didn't even mention Shawn Michaels. And, you know, so it's just like, you know, that that promotion was loaded. And so um, there were a lot of guys to choose from. And if you had a reason for them not to pick you, um, then you were going to go a little, you were going to step down the ladder a notch. And, and Ken had a couple things working against him, both backstage heat that, that we'll talk about in the book, and also the fact that, you know, as great as he is at promoting MMA fights, um, for some reason, when it comes to to interviews in WWF, it just didn't translate. You know, he, he couldn't do he couldn't work the mic the way some of those other guys could, and I think that hurt him as well. So, um, I, I think he, if he had stayed, he still would have been a top a top guy. He probably would have eventually gotten a run with the title. He would have been in that Intercontinental title picture and stuff like that. But, um, you know. It, it, it was just too loaded, you know. Rock and and, and Stone Cold are, are once a once in a generation type talents, and um, you know he came in the wrong time. 
Hey, let's pause for one second and remind you that today's episode is brought to you by our brand new sponsor, Eat Your Coffee. Eat Your Coffee is a coffee company that was founded by coffee-deprived college students that pioneered a new category in caffeinated natural snacks. The company's first product line, Eat Your Coffee Bars, are a date-based snack bar caffeinated with fair trade coffee, which would be comparable to one cup, and made with real ingredients so you can feel good with every energizing bite. Eat Your Coffee snack bars are non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free, kosher, 70% organic, and available in three delicious flavors, including fudgy mocha latte, salted caramel macchiato, and peanut butter mocha, my personal favorite. Now that is an energizing combination because they are on a mission to help get people energized with naturally caffeinated snacks made with real, ethically sourced ingredients. So if you want more information, head on over to www.eatyour.coffee, as well as follow them on Instagram, follow them on Facebook, follow them on Pinterest, and follow them on Twitter, and get all the information on how you can energize the moment with eat your coffee bars so loaded the attitude era is so great and i always just think of ken kind of believing and going back to mba and going back to pride i mean obviously you're going to get into it in the book i don't want to get into too much of it if there's if there's you know some juicy details to it but him leaving and going back to japan and going back to pride is that all to do with him wanting to make some more money, get back to MMA, or is that him kind of unhappy with pro wrestling at that point? Yeah, so it's a little bit of both, and I don't think it's money like making more money because he definitely made more money. He made the most money uh, in his career in, in the WWF, I think, you know, consistently. That was why he left MMA to WWF was all about money. You know, he could make a lot more of it. And, and you know, later on, he, he made some pretty decent money uh, years later uh, against Tito Ortiz on pay-per-view. But, you know, beyond that, you know, WWF was where the money was. But, you know, there was something about fighting that was that drew him. And, and, and so um, throughout his WWF tenure, he was still kind of keeping one foot in the, the fight world. You know, he still had some of his fighters. And he was constantly trying to, like, sell Vince on doing, like, a, a an MMA fight of some kind. Like, you know, almost immediately he was trying to, you know, fight with Mike Tyson. You know, that was one of his early WWF interviews. And then, you know, they had booked a, a fight, he thought, for the UFC with Nobuhiko Takata. And, and they were going to uh, main event the uh, a UFC event in, in Japan that fell through. But he left to go train for that, and Vince was going to let him take that fight. And so he was kind of like, you know, you I guess he just, there was something inside him that wasn't ready to give up on fighting quite yet. And... um and honestly, he pulled some shenanigans to get out of his WWF contract. And um, I wonder a little bit about the fact that, you know, Ken is one of the few guys that has, you know, left WWF and has not been back. You know, they don't, they don't bring him back for anything. And, you know, no one's talked to him about the Hall of Fame or, or anything like that. And um, that, that could be because, um, you know, he, he went hard at Vince to, to get out of his contract and, and it may be something that he he hasn't been forgiven for yet. So that that's another interesting kind of sidebar. And I, I'll be I'll be curious to see if um, he can mend that bridge in with WWF and maybe make some appearances or do one of those like Legends Battle Royals or even go into the Hall of Fame. But you know, as of now, it, you know, he left and he has not been back. Hmm. That is a good point, and it's something to think about. And maybe there's some animosity there. or Something with Vince where he's just not happy with the way he left, so maybe just saying, ah, well, screw him. Maybe Vince has a, a very long memory as far as 
guys leaving him. I mean, <laughs> yeah, there's no doubt. Although, uh, look at Jeff Jarrett, just got in the Hall of Fame last year, and he possibly left in, in the worst fashion. <laughs> That's possible. right. But, you know, Vince is a businessman, and I guess, you know, if there's something that he sees he might want, maybe some footage or, you know, for for Jarrett not to do something. You never know what's going mm-hmm. on but behind the scene with with some of these guys. So, um, But I'm hopeful if that bridge can be mended that maybe that could happen for Ken too because I know uh, – it, it would mean something to him, I think, to, to get into the Hall of Fame and, and, and to, to see the WWF fans again. I think that would be big. Anything surprise you at all as far as interviewing Ken? Did anything kind of come up where you were surprised or maybe his reaction? Anything at all that was kind of just, you, you kind of took you back a little bit? Yeah, I was really surprised at um, how open and he was to discussing some of the, the lifestyle stuff that goes into being a, a famous athlete and then a professional wrestler. Um, the, the details of uh, what goes on, uh, the, the availability of women and the availability of drugs and what the lifestyle was like for those guys. Um, go into some, some detail uh, on that stuff. And then some of it really surprised me because, uh, you know, I think of, I thought of Ken as kind of like the straight-laced guy, and that's what, what he presented on television, almost like a, an American hero type. And uh, in reality, he was just spiraling out of control for for a long time. And uh, that, that kind of surprised me. I wasn't aware of that. And I think uh, that there'll be some details in there that will probably shock uh, anybody that picks up the book. When you're talking to him about you know stuff like that, does he consider that kind of like a rise and fall kind of thing, a fall from grace, or is he just kind of, you know, almost say like flippantly where it's like, yeah, that's just the way it was, or does he, you know, does he consider it high point, low point kind of thing? Yeah, it's definitely, uh, you know, a rise and fall story. One thing about Ken is that he doesn't, <laughs> there is no flippancy with Ken Shamrock mm. at all. Mm. <laughs> you know, he's pretty serious about everything. And so um, he, he's kind of, um, you know, he, he's found religion, and he's uh, he's found Jesus, and and he talks a lot at churches, and I think it's so it's part of his testimony to uh, to share the, his story, and and to share the fact that he's had struggles, and that it's uh, I think that the idea is that it, it, he wants people to know that no matter how how much they've sinned, um, how low they've fallen in their life, that you know he's been there too. And that it, you know you can rise back up, and and that, I think that's a big part of why he's willing to share these things that normally people don't share, um, because he just he wants people who read it and, and to hear his story to to know that no matter what you've done, that you know no one is unforgivable, and and that you can still make something of your life, and so I think it's a for for him it's a it's a, a chance to spread a powerful message. And so that's, uh, I think that is really why he was so open and honest. And, and more importantly, I think, was like he kind of gave his his approval. Like, you know, he didn't tell people what to say, and he didn't, never told me what to ask or what not to ask. He never has asked me, like, don't include this in the book and nothing like that. But what he did was he, he gave the people in his inner circle, like the, the people who know him well, his friends, his fighters, um, he gave them the approval to talk to me honestly. He he would tell them like, you know, I want this guy to know what really happened. 
And, and, and so that really helped a lot. So, cause it gave them the permission to tell me the truth instead of kind of like the sanitized version, which is what you normally get when you do these kind of interviews. Um, people were willing to open up to me. And so, um, we got a lot of interesting stuff and a lot of interesting stories. And I think, uh, when people are done with this book, they're going to know, uh, pretty much everything there is to know about Ken Shamrock. Now, as far as Frank Shamrock and, you know, kind of some people that he's had some bad relationships with in his life, do you talk to everyone or, or is it kind of, I know you said inner circle and different things like that. What about the people kind of on the outside looking in or somebody maybe um, that doesn't necessarily have a great relationship with Ken? Yeah, so I tried my best to talk to everybody. You know, I wasn't um, only trying to talk to people who would say nice things about Ken. Like, you know, I wanted to talk to, to everyone. And um, obviously it's harder, you know, when you're trying to find people who are adversarial towards Ken. You know, they don't necessarily want to – they think it's going to be one of these books where, you know, you, you, shine, you know, I would shine up Ken and, and make him look good all the time. And so they don't want to participate, right, because they – Mm-hmm. They don't like Ken, or they, you know, they don't, they don't want to waste their time, or, um, so you know, I, I did the best I could. Um, some of the the major one I'd say that I that I didn't get to talk to was um, Ken's ex-wife uh, Tina. Um, you know, I, I talked to her briefly, but she just wasn't interested in in rehashing old memories, and so that was a, you know, I, I would have liked to talk to her because obviously she was close to Ken uh, for a long time, so that was a a big one that I missed. And and Frank is another one. Um, I talked to Frank, and I've talked to Frank a lot over the years, but um, he was really hesitant to participate in this book. He got really angry at some of the questions I asked him. And so um, he was one of the, the few people I talked to that was uh, not cooperative, I'd say. <laughs> so uh, uh, still a lot of bad blood there between those two guys. And that may be something that just never changes. Now, I think the feelings... Uh, the animosity between them uh, and the really the the source of those feelings is so personal and so strong that um, you know the, their relationship will never be completely right. And so um, I'm definitely going to cover that in the book as best I can. Um, I, I wish I I wish Frank could talk to me more though. You know that would have been I, I would have liked to have heard his perspective more. For sure, and that's one of those things where you always thought that they were going to fight. I mean, not recently, many, many years ago. I always thought that they were going to have that one-on-one fight, and it just never came to pass. I, I don't know. Uh, is that one of the fights that you kind of look at or like, man, I wish that would have happened to see who would have won between these two guys? Yeah, so I don't know um, how I would have felt about it, you know, because it's a, it definitely is very emotional. It's not like a normal prize fight. You know, there's something very personal about it. And the fact that they had had this this relationship, um, it definitely would have been intense, right? And um, mm. unfortunately, it, it would have come like well after Ken was past his prime physically, Frank too, but I think Ken more so. So it would have been, you know, I'm not sure what it would have proven. Um, I will say that, you know, even Frank will admit, like you know, at the time when they were together, you know, there's no question about who would have won. You know, uh, every single line stand person I ever talked I talked to it was pretty clear that Ken smashed everyone in the gym, uh, and and Frank would have presented no competition to to Ken Shamrock in in his fighting prime. Um, he, he would have crushed Frank. 
um, what would have happened later after Frank had gotten some additional training and really gotten good. Um, it's a different question, but I definitely, I think, um, in their time together, uh, there, there's no doubt who the alpha male was. And even now in their interactions, you know, it's definitely Ken is the, the big brother, not just in, in reality, but also, you know, that's what it feels like. You know, he's he's still the dominant figure in, in a lot of ways. And so uh, mentally, I think that would have been tough for Frank because, um, you know, Ken had been his sensei and, and had crushed him so many times and beaten him up so many times in the gym that um, I wonder if he could have, like, convinced himself that he could win. It would have been interesting. You know, uh, it might happen one day on the street if they run into each other. Who knows? You know, hmm. <laughs> nothing would shock me. So it was one of those what ifs. You, you would think Ken would win, but you never know. Maybe he, maybe he, you know, he would kind of have reservations. You, you never know with something that personal and and that heated what what would happen. But uh, that's always one of those for me, anyways. Like, oh man, what if uh, those two would have would have fought? I wonder what if. But as far as Ken's fighting, is there something you know when you look at his? fighting career do you have some favorite fights or does he have some favorite fights that like stick out not not only like you know let's just say the tito series because you know he was bringing in a lot of viewers and a lot of money but is there something that's kind of near and dear to you or near and dear to him as far as his fighting career you know it's really tough to tell with him like you know he's not like the kind of guy that you know talks a lot about um the, the high points, you know, um, he definitely focuses more on the fights he lost. <laughs> mm. and, uh, but, you know, he and I watched some of his fights together and, and we, um, you know, I had him walk me through it. You know, we'd watch it and he'd explain to me what was going on. And, and he has a good memory for a lot of these fights. Like he remembers what he was thinking and what his preparations were. Um, but these are definitely things that um, were important to him and, and, and he still has a good memory for them. Um, I think for him, like the fights that really um, established that he was a good fighter, you know, because there's so many people that question that, um, are the ones that are important to him. Like um, the wins over Boss Rudin, who became UFC heavyweight champion, are big. Obviously, his super fight championship win over Dan Severn, um, the the fights with Chemo are, are fights that, that he um, is proud of. The fact that um, he went to a draw and kind of beat up Hoist Gracie at UFC 5 are, is a big fight for him. So, and, and the fact that he beat Funaki, who was his instructor and mentor in Pancras, the guy who taught him submission wrestling, that he beat him on the very first Pancras card in, in September of 1993 is definitely a fight that um, that he, he remembers well and is proud of. And, of course, his um, the, the two-day tournament uh, for the King of Pancras Championship in, in 1994, where he won um, four matches in two days, uh, beating like uh, future UFC heavyweight champion Marty Smith. He beat Funaki. He he beat Yamada from from Shudo. Um, that that was a big uh, a big weekend for him and, and a big accomplishment. And that's a a plaque that he still has at his house. Um, he doesn't have a lot of memorabilia, but the plaque that he got from Pancras for winning the the, the King of Pancras Championship was uh, is something that he displays and in his product. That's very very cool, and I like that he's got that uh, good memory bank as far as some of those Japanese fights and things like that. I'm very interested to see if there was any worked matches in there because 
that's always, you know, people always say that about Japan. Oh, pride was, there was worked fights. And I mean, there, there was, but I don't know. You could probably say about a couple fights in UFC that I've seen as well. You never know in the MMA game. Oh yeah. Especially, you know, when you think about MMA and the fact that, you know, there was this period of time where there was a lot of betting going on in, in Las Vegas on MMA fights. Um, meanwhile, the fighters were making like 10 or $15,000. Um, that, that's a lot of, uh, a lot of reasons to, to throw a fight or, or to mm-hmm. a fight. Um, the fact that you could make so much more money doing that than you could um, actually competing in the fights. You know, uh, I, I can't say for sure that there were work fights, um, but almost certainly there were. You know, <laughs> that's my opinion. So uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a strange game. You know, you have to watch MMA fights really carefully to try to figure out what's going on. Now, one thing that I always wanted to like kind of pitch to you because I always think about this when I'm watching MMA fights and stuff. It's just a crazy idea, but always wanted to do this: rewatch old fights, but the ones that are more controversial, the ones that that you really had kind of like we said with Hoist and Ken from UFC Five. Like I don't know, me personally, I thought Ken won, and the draw was a little bit iffy to me. So I don't know. Sometimes looking back, I was like, man, I was like, there should be some podcast or what something out there that they rewatch old fights that are controversial and they decide a real winner of who fought. Like for instance, Dan Henderson versus Bisping. I know Henderson's forty-seven years old. But my God, he won that fight, and I, don't, I hate the the ten point uh, must system and all of those stuff. Shamrock, I mean uh, Henderson easily won that fight. Hendricks versus GSP. Hendricks literally beat GSP so bad he retired for five years. I mean, some of those fights, I feel like somebody needs to get out there with your credibility and say, "Hey, this guy really won that fight. That's bullshit." <laughs> it's definitely an interesting idea, and it's. Uh... You know, it's something that's occurred for a long time. You know, people have been debating the fight decisions for, you know, longer than you and I have been alive, you know, starting with boxing matches and stuff like that. Um, there, there's no shortage uh, of controversial fights. And I think that the most uh, the most talked about, I think, in, in, in the early days of my fandom that, that I can remember where there was just a huge controversy. There was a fight for the UFC um heavyweight championship between Boss Rudin and, and Kevin Randleman, in which, um, you know, most people thought that Randleman had had won the fight. You know, he had, he had taken Boss down and, um, and and beaten him up pretty good. And um, somehow the, the judges in Birmingham, Alabama, reached a split decision, and uh, Boss became uh, the, the UFC heavyweight champion. But that's one that people debated for a long time. So you're absolutely right. Like, you know, those kind of things will always be interesting to people. And uh, that that may be uh, something to think about for sure. What did you think, GSP and Hendricks? Was that bullshit or what? <laughs> it was definitely a close fight. You know, it's it, you know it, it's tough to think about some of these fights because you can, um, you know, I thought Pride did it in an interesting way in which, you know, they just had the judges decide who won this fight. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you just decided. You know who won the fight overall. Um, it, it does get more complicated when you run into to this ten point must system and you have the five rounds and to to split them between and you know maybe GSP won three narrow rounds and Hendricks won two rounds which you know he did a lot more. Um, but you know for whatever reason they count they value those three close rounds for GSP more than they do two 
dig rounds for Hendrix. Does that make sense? I don't know. That's just how the system works. And so it does it does end up with these kind of weird results where a guy like GSP who was beaten out really badly in that fight um, was declared the winner. Uh, that that, uh, that doesn't sit well with a lot of people. So it's uh, it's always going to be a problem as long as there's judges and as long as uh, there's scoring systems, there's going to be someone complaining about it. So <laughs> it's part of what makes it interesting, I think, the fact that we can talk about it afterwards, years later, and um, people will still feel strongly one way or the other. For sure. And even John Jones Gustafson, I've always felt like that was a little bit of a black mark on Jones's basically perfect career. I know he had that big knockdown in the middle rounds, but man, I was like, I really kind of thought Gustafson won that fight. And then, you know, it, it didn't turn out that way. But I always find it funny when one guy ends up in the hospital, can't move, can barely walk, and the other guy is, you know, walking around laughing and stuff. Like, <laughs> it's like Tank Abbott used to say, well, I'm going to the bar. You're going to go, you know, you're going to end up in the hospital. Either way, I'm going to the bar. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it. And I, I wrote an article, I think, for Bleacher Report after that fight where I went back and watched the fight over again, kind of like you're discussing, to try to figure out who won. And then it was definitely a close fight. I know for the people in Albuquerque, I've been down there several times to do stories on fighters, and we did a big story on Greg Jackson for Bleacher Report. And, you know, Jones did not really train for that fight. Now, I know it sounds like an excuse, but I think it's true that he took Gustafson lightly and, uh, and and you could see like in the fight he paid for he paid the price for that ego. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens when they fight again, if Jones is going to take it seriously, what he has left, having been kind of in and out of the game for several years because of his own personal shenanigans, um, what what kind of fighter he still is, that that's a fight I'm really looking forward to. That's going to be a good one. And I always find it funny when the guys kind of at his level or like huge names like that kind of not stop training, but they almost aren't taking it as seriously. I don't know if they're like resting on that, like, you know, they're a legend or, you know, resting on like, oh, I can still win it. Fedor, for instance, I remember watching his training. He was literally riding a horse and like swimming. I was like, how is that training uh, for a fight? I was like, my God, he's not taking this seriously. Or Rampage Jackson who's talking about eating um, cheeseburgers. But then you got Nate Diaz who said he's been surfing and eating fast food. And he comes in and he taps out <laughs> Conor McGregor. I mean, it's such a weird kind of dynamic, such a weird sport with some of these guys that just, you know, did almost stop training at some point. Yeah, so the the thing about MMA is, like, the fights are brutal, but, but what really wears people down and, and shortens careers is the training cycle. And so, you know, it, training is hard, man. It's hard work, and it hurts, and, and you do yourself damage. And so the longer these guys fight, the more likely they are to kind of um, be limited in what they can do in training just because they put so much mileage on their bodies, they have so much wear and tear, that it becomes almost harder to do the training than, than to step into the cage and fight. And so you know, a lot of times you'll see this as guys um, move on in, in their career. Like when you think about the Gustafson fight for for Jones, that was, uh, he had like, what, one, two, three, four, five fights for the UFC light heavyweight championship prior to that. You know, so that is, those were five fights in a row where he was training for five rounds um, and fighting some of the, the best fighters in the world, former champions. Like, you know, he was probably worn out. You know, maybe he just felt like 
he needed a little bit of rest. And, you know, he's fought Rashad. He's fought uh, Machida. He's fought Rampage. He's fought Shogun. Now he's fighting the Swedish kid or whatever. He's like, oh, man, I can take, I can take it a little lighter on for this one. But the deal is, like, everyone at this level is good, so there's nobody you can take lightly. And um, he may have learned that on that night, you know? You, mm-hmm. you think he would, you know? <laughs> it, it was a, a lesson that was taught by Gustafson for sure that, you know, you've got to respect everybody you step in there with at a certain level because all of them can beat you. I know it probably won't happen now because Cormier is retiring, but I'd love to see Cormier versus John Jones at heavyweight. I don't know. He Cormier just isn't, you could tell, he's just not the same fighter at light heavyweight. I know he won the title, and he only has one loss, really, technically two, really, to both to Jones, but I feel like at heavyweight, it's his natural weight, and he's just so damn dominant at heavyweight. I don't even remember a remotely close fight that he's had at heavyweight, and he killed Stipe. Um, you know, he destroyed uh, Barnett and Bigfoot and, and all these guys and kind of just runs through them. I mean, would you would you think that that fight would ever happen at heavyweight? And, and do you think Cormier would have a better shot at beating him? Well, I think it would be interesting to see. Um, I, I definitely disagree, though, in some ways that, I, I, you know, I definitely don't think that Daniel Cormier is a natural heavyweight. Like, you know, he, what's amazing about him is how successful he's been despite how undersized he's been in almost every UFC fight he's ever had. You know, if you think about uh, Daniel, in, in college he wrestled at 184 pounds. So, um, you know, he probably has the build, if you're talking about, like, height and reach, he has the, the build of a, of a middleweight. He has hmm. less, less reach than Conor McGregor at featherweight and lightweight. You know, he's... he's uh, he has some real physical um, problems. You know, he doesn't match up well with most people. And, and he wins anyway. You know, that just says so much about his level of skill. And so I'd be curious to see them fight again. I'm not 100% convinced that he's necessarily better at heavyweight than he was at light heavyweight. I think what we might be seeing is that the fighters at heavyweight are not as good as the fighters at light heavyweight. Mm. And that's the difference. And so... Um, because I, I think there is a, a skill level difference that's pretty extreme um, between heavyweight and, and light heavyweight and some of the lower the lower weight classes, you know. Um, so Daniel's able to go up at heavyweight and win just because he's so talented and, and he, he's strong enough that he can overcome those size differences. Strong and skilled and just better than those guys. Um, but I'm not sure, like, if you just don't have them cut weight, does that change anything against Jones? I'm not. I'm not sure. You know, Jones is still going to have all those advantages in size and, and reach that were there at light heavyweight. He's just going to be a little bit bigger. So um, I'd pay to watch it again. I'll tell you that. I think they're the two best fighters uh, in the last five years that I've seen. So um, I'd watch them fight every week if I could. Oh yeah, there's no doubt. Those two are the best. Shame that John Jones has so many uh, personal problems. Um, but speaking of the best, I think Fedor is the greatest of all time. I may be biased because I, I love him. Do you think he has any shot of beating Bader and actually becoming in 2019 a heavyweight champion again? Huh? Uh, why not? <laughs> you know, Fedor uh, definitely has some. Uh, he's definitely a change fighter than than you know the guy who dominated for so many years in Pride. Um, an older fighter, 
maybe less quick, um, less adaptable. Um, part of what made him so successful was a lot like Daniel Cormier was that he had this unprecedented skill level despite being undersized and, and the fact that he was quicker than his heavyweight opponents and was able to beat him to the punch so often. Um, that was, that was his real advantage. And, and I, that's faded a little bit as he's gotten older. So, you know, um, but he, he still has some of these tools that, that mean he could win. He still hits really hard. He still moves quick compared to most heavyweights. And, and, and he could definitely land one on, on Bader and, uh, and put him down for the count. You know, I think he's proven that he could do that against anybody. So, Man, how great would it be to see that? You know, not Brian Vader, nice guy, but man, I, I'm rooting for Fedor big time. That would be awesome. The only thing that kind of gets me about Fedor is he used to be such a complete fighter. I mean, you know, tapping out Mark Coleman pretty easily twice. I mean, just the way he kind of can uh, Randall in, my God, and you're dropping his head and he still taps the guy out. You know, just I feel like he's just going kind of going for the knockout now, although he obviously still has a pretty good skill set. But, you know, I feel like you back in the day, he definitely would analyze the guys more like, you hear stories that him and his camp knew how long uh, Big Nog's legs were, and that he wouldn't be able to triangle them because his legs and his neck, and like, weird stuff like that, but then the Verdum fights happened, like, oh, they were the same height, we thought they had the same leg size. Like, weird stuff where he almost isn't focusing as much uh, on, the, on the little details that it seemed like he focused on when he was going through his dominant run. Yeah, I mean, that could be. But, you know, you have to remember, you know, he's also an aging guy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, sometimes we, we kind of overcomplicate things um, when, when we talk about, like, the little details. And they're fun to talk about. But I think the, the biggest thing is that he's 42 years old, you know, that, mm-hmm. that more than anything else. Not just that he's 42 years old, but he's also 42 years old, and he's got uh, 44 professional prize fights, most of them at the, at the top level against really good fighters. And, and he's been through the ringer a few times. And, you know, like we were talking about, he, he's, he's been through a lot of training camps, a lot of wear and tear. Um, it, it may be that he's trying for these quick knockouts because he knows his body's not capable of training for a long fight and he's got to get out of there quickly. Like, you know, there's a, a lot of factors that, that could play into it. But one of the things is, is that people kind of forget about it because he had that run in strike force where, where he lost three fights in a row since that time he's, he's won seven of eight fights. Like, so, uh, he's kind of, uh, on an extended tear. You know, he lost the one fight to Matt Mitrion where they both kind of knocked each other silly and Mitrion was able to get up first. And then that was the, the difference. But beyond that, you know, he's, uh, he's doing okay, you know? So, um, I, I, tentatively confident that, that he can show well against Bader. But, you know, Bader is such a, a careful, professional fighter that it's going to be hard to hit him with a winging punch and, and knock him out. You know, he's a really disciplined fighter. So in, in that sense, this may be the fight where we do see um, what what kind of tools Fedor has on the ground these days because he may end up on his back, and, and that'll be really interesting. Mm. See what 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 kind of uh, offense he can present from that position. So this could be a little bit different than, than some of the the fights that he's had in recent years, where that hasn't been a big issue. Definitely looking forward to that fight big time. Now I know you're a huge Conor McGregor fan. I got to mention him, huh. and I got to mention the I like to call him Khabib, but I guess it's really Habib, and uh, that fight. 
did you going in? Because I don't know. I always talk to a couple of my friends that are big MMA fans, and my brother's a big MMA fan. Talking and going into it, I said Connor has no chance whatsoever. He's going to get starched. You know, it's it's almost not fair at this point because he had a layoff and he's going to kill him. Did you think going in that Connor had a real chance? Oh yeah, yeah, of course. And I think that in, he actually was able to demonstrate. Uh, he, for the, he he was able to, to to have some opportunities. I think that was the what was interesting. Like people focus on the result, and the result was that that Nurmagomedov was able to to win the fight by submission, and he did really well in several rounds. But the truth is, is that it kind of went just how Connor would have expected and wanted it to. Like you know, he was able to survive early rounds on the ground. He was able to have a round in which he won in which almost the entire thing took place on their feet and um and he had his opportunities. He just didn't he just didn't hit that one punch and he didn't do enough. And um and so he lost. And he lost to a better fighter on that night. But, you know, to me the analysis of it isn't just isn't that he doesn't have a chance. You know, he still has the, the same chance that, that he always had, which is to, to win on the feet. And he was able to put himself in that position where where he was able to get uh, Khabib to, to engage him standing. And so I thought that was great for him. You know, it just didn't work out. And sometimes that happens in, in sports where, like, both people are able to execute their game plan, and one of them is better on the given night. And and that's what, what happened in that fight. Um, but, you know, and, and I think Nurmagomedov would be the favorite for sure if they ever had a rematch. But... Um, despite having seen what I did, I still think there's an opportunity for Connor. Um, and because he had opportunity in that fight and uh, he just didn't execute. And so, um, you know, I, I would enjoy watching them fight again. I think it would be interesting. They got to have that rematch. I mean, especially after the melee and everything that happened, they got to have a rematch, but he definitely did better than I thought he would do. I actually thought he was going to, uh, be taken down and tapped out in the first round. So, I mean, he did do a lot better than I thought he would do. I just, I don't know, for whatever reason going into it, I just couldn't see him winning. I just thought um, Habib had just too much momentum. And I don't know, he's just on too much of a roll. But, you know, you never know in MMA, like the the one punch, you know, the, um, what's his name, uh, Yar against the Korean zombie. You know, the, you, you get something like that or a fluke elbow, something like You know, you never know in MMA. Yeah, I mean, and it had been almost two years since Conor had an MMA fight, so yep. it's a, you know, there was a lot going on with that. And he's also a guy that's had um, a string of injuries throughout his career. He's he's recently come into a lot of money, <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, so there, you know, there there was a lot going against him. And I think uh, Nurmagomedov was rightfully the favorite. And and if I was betting money on the fight, I would have put it on him. You know, he, stylistically, it was a tough match for Conor. And so you you were right that, you know, Khabib should have been the favorite. And he proved why, you know. He went out there and won the fight. It was good, great for him. You know, it, it was a tremendous performance. Now, if we start to wind it down here, I feel like I could probably talk to you all night about MMA or wrestling and, or even boxing. I mean, there's a million things that I could talk to you about. just want to quickly mention, obviously, a, a couple other books you have, Total MMA, Inside Ultimate Fighting, the MMA Encyclopedia, and then, of course, Shooters, which is a great pro wrestling book that is outside of the Shamrock book. For you, do you have a favorite pro wrestling or MMA, or do you consider them one giant thing? Because technically, 
pro wrestling is the grandfather of MMA. Oh, you mean like which do I enjoy, enjoy more personally? Yes. Um, yeah, I'll, pro wrestling for sure. Um, and I do think they're cousins, right? Um, mm-hmm. they're, not, they're not exactly the same, but for sure MMA has its roots in professional wrestling. And if you've read Shooters and anybody who's interested in that topic, you know, there's definitely a direct connection between professional wrestling and MMA, both in America and, and also in, in Japan. Like, undeniable. So it's always funny to me when people, MMA people complain about pro wrestling influence and stuff like that when when your sport is derived <laughs> from professional wrestling. Brazilian mm-hmm. jiu-jitsu is, is, you know, the progenitor of that was a professional wrestling wrestler who came to, to Japan or, or came to Brazil from Japan. Like, it's a... You know, there's so many connections between the two. It's it's funny that people get so offended by pro wrestling influence in MMA when when they are they are so closely related. But for me, it's pro wrestling all the way. Um, I've just loved it since I was a kid, and it's just uh, the excitement that can happen in the ring is unlike anything else. And, and what I love about it is not just um, there's not just one way to do it. There's a there's so many different forms from women's wrestling in Japan to, you know, hardcore wrestling back in the old days of FMW and, and Onita and then ECW. And then there's the Lucha Libre style with the, the high-flying and dives and crazy arm drags and the, the pageantry and the masks. And then there's the Japanese strong style. Uh, there's New Japan Pro Wrestling where, you know, it's presented as a, a little bit more of an athletic contest and these guys are really wailing on each other and they're taking all these risks and doing all these intricate uh, sequences and moves. Like there's just so many different ways to do it. And, and, and I love all of them. And so for me, it's pro wrestling, you know, I don't even have to hesitate. Now I know you love the Japanese wrestling. I know you love new Japan pro wrestling. Minoru Suzuki obviously has got to be one of your favorites. One of my favorite. He's great. You got Okada who might be, going up there in almost Misawa, uh, Kobashi, Kawada territory for me, which is crazy to, to say, but he's getting up there. He is great. And then there's a guy that I feel like people don't know enough about, and that's Ishii, Tomohiro Ishii, who is unbelievable. He's awesome. Who is some of your favorite Japanese guys out there? I mean, I know you're also not Japanese, but he's in New Japan. I know you like Kenny Omega as well. Yes, but my wife has started watching wrestling, and she's really turned me on to Kenny Omega, who is a, you know, I didn't always appreciate everything that he did, um, but, you know, I've kind of grown to love him as I, as I understand more what he's trying to accomplish in the ring. So he's def, uh, I'm definitely a fan of his. Um, going back um, to the 90s, obviously, I, I love the, the guys they call the four pillars of all Japan pro wrestling, which were Misawa, Kobashi, Kawada, and Taui. Um just uh, incredible. The matches they put on, uh, not only against each other, but, but against the likes of like Dr. C. Williams and Stan Hansen, um, just uh, Terry Gordy, like just unlike anything you've ever seen, like top of the top of the line wrestling that even stands up today, um, 25 years later, you know, it, it, you could put that on television right now and it would be great. And, and everybody would love it. So, um, you know, I, I love that stuff. I love the junior heavyweight style of Jushin, Thunder Liger, you know, is is one of my wrestling heroes, and and that continues to to today. Where you know I enjoy watching, you know, the junior heavyweights, uh, Saban and, and Kushida and ACH and and all these guys. Um, 
I mean, I could probably spend an hour listing wrestlers that I that I love to watch. So, <laughs> um, hmm. you know, we 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 watch a lot now. You know, we're watching so much, so much. You know, the the Ring of Honor stuff. There's all the stuff on the the High Spots Wrestling Network, um, Pro Wrestling Guerrilla, um, New Japan, of course. You know, there's great wrestling going on. Uh, all around the world, and so I, I think it, it, it would be cool for for people who only watch WWE to try something else. Just randomly pick something that that someone recommends to you, and, and see if you like it. Because I think you will, and I think there's a, a lot out there for for fans uh, to enjoy, and it's really just one click away. That's the cool part about it. So much good wrestling out there. So much easy access to it, whether it's old school, new school whatever you want to watch, whatever category, I mean, it's out there. I mean, WB Network, High Spots Network, uh, New Japan World, I mean, there's so much good stuff. Also, if you're on Twitter you can and, you know, you want to check out Hybrid Shoots, another good one, and I did check out that poll. I was surprised Tao got a couple more votes than I thought he would on that Four Pillars poll you did. Kobashi got the win. I voted for Misawa, though, i got to be honest, even though I love Kawada as well, but I voted for Misawa on that one. Yeah, so I, I'm a Kawada guy. So, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. obviously they're all excellent, but, you know, once when you're in it as like a fan and, you know, you're watching it in real time and you're living and dying on who's winning the matches, like, uh, it's hard to forget those uh, allegiances that you have, you know? <laughs> hmm. Like, uh, like I could never be a Midnight Express guy because, you know, I, lo- I love Ricky Morton so much. And so it's the same way. You know, as much as I, I respect Misawa and, and, and his various partners, um, Kawada's my guy. And, and I, I honestly think he's probably um, the best professional wrestler I've ever seen, you know, just as a total package. Uh, it doesn't have the charisma of Kobashi or Misawa, but just uh, his, the realism of his offense, the, the variety of techniques, and, and the way he would sell is like beyond anybody else I've ever seen. Like the, um, not only just like the immediate move, but he would sell like the aftermath and he would sell the extended beating he had taken. And like, he just really believed it. And um, so, you know, for, for me, he's the guy. He's the guy I voted for. And uh, since he didn't win, I'm going to erase it just out of spite. <laughs> <laughs> Kawada Misawa, to me, is, is one of the greatest feuds of all time. I mean, when I think of great feuds, I always put Kawada Misawa up there. I love Flyer Steamboat, obviously. you got to go Tiger Mask, Dynamite Kid, uh, Bret Hart, Owen Hart, I throw up there 100%. I mean, there's just some feuds that are just awesome. And, and I did, I mean, I always thought Okada Tanahashi, that was my my feud, you know, currently, as far as Misawa Kawada kind of matching it up. But you think Omega Okada has kind of gotten into the Misawa Kawada territory? Well, I think it's interesting because there's um, obviously the, the the in-ring matches are great, and, and you can't really deny it. You know, the, the two are excellent together. They work well together, and there's just something special there. But um, and it's a great feud. Like you know, so so you you're easily misunderstood in these kind of conversations, right? Where you say because we're talking about what's the greatest feud of all time. And, and I'm going to say it's not the greatest feud of all time. That could be easily mistaken for me saying I didn't like it or it's not good. Um, obviously, no, I don't think that. I think it's great. I loved it. But there's something missing to it. 
And that's like that energy and passion and hatred for each other that you don't feel between Omega and Akata. It's just more like two guys that are good at sports. And, 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 you know, and they match up a lot and, you know, we'll see who's going to win. And that's cool. But it doesn't, um, it doesn't give you the same kind of feeling as, as some of these other ones. And so um, to me, it's not the, it's, it can't be the best of all time, even though the matches arguably are. Um, you know, I feel, I felt like kind of a more emotional connection between uh, Okada and, and, and Tanahashi, where even now, like the build to Tanahashi and, and Omega is like, uh, feels kind of personal. You know, there's a lot of uh, real world stuff and intrigue going on there. And they're saying, you know, some stuff that could really get under the other one's skin in real life. And like, it's a, uh, it, it, it intrigues me. And uh, so I, I'm really enjoying that as well. So um, uh, Omega and Okada are as great as they are. I don't think you could say it's the greatest feud ever because it just doesn't quite feel like a feud. It just feels like an extended series of great matches, if that makes sense. Totally agree. And I don't know, I just love Brett and Owen. It could be because I was at WrestleMania 10 and that really kind of stuck with me all these years. But uh Brett Owen is for that personal brother rivalry, and and actually their chemistry together is just unbelievable. That's one of the few that I always throw up there on the top too, just because it's so personal and the chemistry is just off the charts. Well, I mean, Brett Brett Hart had that uh, was so great uh, for for so long, and you know, you're talking about Brett and Owen, but you could also easily you know be bringing up. Uh, Brett and Shawn Michaels, which, mm-hmm. you know, yep. obviously had had so much going on behind the scenes, and then when they did manage to wrestle each other, they they always had a great match. And then, um, you know, the the one that I almost feel like we were cheated out of because Brett went to WCW was um, there. There was such great chemistry between Brett and Stone Cold Steve Austin, um, and, and obviously they had a great match, but you know they were. Um, we were cheated out of them having an extended feud first because of Austin's injury and then Brett going to WCW, but that was like kind of the one that got away because um, Brett had always been such a great worker, but, you know, towards the end of his WWF run, he was really figuring out his character and, and how to like walk that fine line between being a baby face and a heel and, and, and still being believable. And, you know, he was he was doing the gimmick where he was a, a heel of some places and a baby face other places. And, um, you know, he was he was just nailing it. And uh, that that would have been a great one, an all-time great one, I think, had had the stars aligned differently. Oh, man, it's such great chemistry. Survivor Series 96, that match is awesome. It kind of goes under the radar, underrated, because Brett was gone for a while and it was returned. But the WrestleMania 13 match is unbelievable. Uh, they had a match in your house I love. I mean, there's so many great matches and and so many great moments with those two. You're right. I mean, I definitely wish that few would have extended. And the thing with Brett is, to me anyway, I feel like the reason he's so underrated, he's the only guy that I've ever seen as far as wrestling that could, like, fool me. Like, we, you don't know. Like, we still talk about Montreal Screwjob. Was it real? Was it a shoe? Was it a work? What was it? When he would limp, I'm like, is he really hurt? Is he? Is it fake? You know, he's just he's the one guy who was the believability factor. Everything he did was like unbelievable. He just was just on point. His psychology, everything he did was was top notch. 
Yeah, I mean, he was in such control in the ring. Like, what a, what a master craftsman. And I'm glad you mentioned Survivor Series in 96, just in, in case my friend Ryan Loco is listening. Um, <laughs> he, always, he always brings that match up. That's his favorite uh, Bret Hart-Steve uh, Austin match. And so uh, he always wants to talk about that one. And he's probably, if he's listening, he's going to be so thrilled that somebody else mentioned it. <laughs> hey, you know what? I got I to gotta tell this to him as well. I was there about ten rows back. I was at that show as well at MSG. That was a that was an awesome night, and uh, that match is is just forever ingrained in my head, just because it was Brett's return and, and the pop he got. The crowd was awesome, but um, a lot of people don't realize later on in the night, Shawn Michaels um, did spit on a fan. I don't know if that was caught on camera, and he was kind of a, a dick. So there's the the Brett Shawn thing again. Brett was awesome. You know, at that night, he's a kind of a king of the hill. Michaels came off pretty bad. So if you, if you're looking at the at the Brett HBK rivalry, you got to say um, Brett looks good and HBK. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you you might be mad too if you had to wrestle Sid for 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> he was. Yeah, no, so, I'm just kidding. God bless you, Sid. You're you're, you're awesome. But he uh, was so over that night. It was crazy. And it's funny when you look up like history of the fist bump. They always show Survivor Series '96 him fist bumping everybody. And they're like, oh, he invented it. Uh, you know, Sid invented it. But that that is funny that uh, that Ryan likes. Um, that Brett versus Austin match, because for whatever reason, that kind of goes under the radar, even though it shouldn't. I mean, that match is unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the, the all-time greats of that pre-Attitude Era WWF. You know, it's uh, it, it stands up with anything. Uh, great match. So it definitely deserves to be remembered. And uh, as long as Ryan's around, <laughs> and you, I guess, uh, <laughs> people will call it. So <laughs> that's cool. Now, I've obviously got to mention again, Shamrock, the world's most dangerous man. The book is, is available right now on Indiegogo. Go out there and help reach that goal. I believe there is 17 or 18 days left. We definitely want to get everybody over there, reach that $10,000 goal. It's getting there slowly but surely. But give us uh, one last big plug for Indiegogo and obviously for the book with Ken Shamrock. Yeah, so there's a lot going on there. It's like not not only are we, are we trying to um, to get money to help fund this Ken Shamrock book, um, we have a broader mission with the Hybrid Shoot, which is the publishing company that that we're starting. And, and the idea is to create books um, for hardcore fans by hardcore fans. And so, uh, you know, we're betting on the fact that there's an audience of wrestling and MMA fans that want high quality books. Uh, long-form content, interesting artwork, and, and, and all kinds of stuff uh, uh, about the sports that they love. And, and they're not really getting it from traditional big New York publishers, uh, in part because, you know, they've just decided the audience is too small to be worth it while. And, um, and so unless it's like a big star like Conor McGregor or Ronda Rousey, um, they're just not going to do any books anymore uh, about these subjects. And so, you know, we, we want to create uh, a publishing company where you can do a book uh, about Ken Shamrock, you can do a book about Pancras, you could do a book about um, ECW or, or SMW or FMW or, you know, pick your acronym for the wrestling promotion. And, and you know, nothing is too small, you know, because it, it all matters, especially to, to fans because we love it so much. And these, this is history that's worth capturing and worth remembering. And so, 
a lot of the money that we're raising is not just for the Ken book, but it's to do the book after that and the book after that and, and to hire new new talent and, and all these great writers and artists that are out there in the wrestling space especially. Like I want to give them a platform to, to push out their own content and their own books and their own artwork. And uh, that, that's really what it's all about. So at this point, the money that you're giving is not just for the to get the Ken book, which I think is going to be a great product, but you also like... Uh, you know, helping these these new artists and, and writers live their dream, and we're going to put out a lot of cool stuff over the years. That's the hope, and, and it all starts with this. So, you know, if you love wrestling and you want to see some some high quality wrestling books, um, you know, take a look at the page and, and see if it's something you're willing to support. Got some great stuff on there. Got exclusive paintings. Got an MMA event with. Ken got an action figure bundle, autographed, autographed hardcover, autographed paperback, and I am sorry, I believe the Japanese magazines are, aren't available. I believe they are all sold out. Huh, we sold the last one today, then. Yeah, so that's a. Uh, um, those were magazines that were Japanese pro wrestling magazines from the early '90s that were that were Ken that that had Ken on the cover and and they were in Ken's collection. And so he's going to autograph them, and so that that was pretty cool. And um, the fact that people were so interested in it, I'm uh, I'll, I'll bug him and see uh, if he has any more of them. Maybe we can get some more up there. But um, yeah, I guess uh, you know those are gone, but there's a lot of other great things, and uh, I hope people will, will have a look and uh, see if there's something they're interested in. I encourage everyone to please help fund Shamrock, the world's most dangerous man, on Indiegogo. But before we let you go. Give us your plugs for uh, yourself, obviously, uh, Twitter, whatever social media you have, and even uh, Hybrid Shoot as well. Yeah, so um, I'm on, on Twitter at J.E. Snowden. That, that's my name. And also uh, we have a Twitter account at, at Hybrid Shoot, which is uh, started out as a blog about um, shoot-style wrestling, and, and you know now we're transitioning into to bigger things. But that's a place where, where you'll find information about, about the book, about future books, and also, you know, I, I post a lot of random pictures and videos from my collection, uh, especially when I get a, a new Japanese magazine or something from the, from the 90s or the 80s. Uh, I'll scan in some pictures occasionally, and some it'll it'll be a good trip down memory lane for a lot of people. So uh, that, that's worth checking out as well. Um, and, and of course, you can find my writing pretty regularly at, at Bleacher Report. Where I write about MMA and, and boxing and pro wrestling. So, uh, uh, you know, you can find links to my stories on my Twitter as well. So, you know, it's easy to find me, and, and I'm happy to tell you what I'm doing at any given time. <laughs> awesome stuff. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking all the time tonight, and good luck with getting that book fully funded. Thanks a lot. I appreciate your help. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.